Welcome to the Robert Hunt Financial Market Update. It's your host, Robert Hunt, where I take the week's news. That can be a bit confusing, misleading, and take you off course, and I help to make it actionable, understandable, and clear. What a week we've got for you. If you have kept your ear to the ground and been listening, you know we've had a bit of news this week, particularly in the area of regional banks. So we're going to talk about that. I've got some interesting data that popped up on my news feed, not an article, but we'll look at the regional bank problems, give you my analysis. We're also going to look at one of our favorites, Jason Zwig. He has an article about private debt funds and how it is that some of these funds will advertise to the investor. I'll then share a little bit of my personal experience and then we will end it with a Jack Pitcher article, Investors Are Piling Into Actively Managed ETFs, Exchange Trade Funds. We will see why that is and what that means for you, if anything. So let's start here at the top. Again, if you're watching the news at all, reading the newspaper at all, hanging out on Twitter, it's typically what I'm doing, I found two data points that I just want to read to you. So for those of you who haven't, I'll just give you a quick review. Regional banks in the United States of America are under pressure. Now, different banks are under pressure for different reasons, but as you know, Silicon Valley Bank folded, First Republic Bank folded, Signature Bank in New York folded. They had what amounts to a run on the bank coupled with a mismatch of their risk. So duration, they, they didn't quite match up their short-term deposits with their investments. So that's a simple way of saying it, but it creates a lot of pressure. So now there are these other banks around the country that are similarly situated. I'll just give you a little context for where we are in our country's history today. This is by Mr. Peter Malouk. He put together the largest U.S. bank failures. Now he must not have Hey, this could be all time. It's not adjusted for inflation, so you're not going to see anything from 1929 because they just didn't have as many assets. But the largest was Washington Mutual, 2008. Assets at the time of failure, $307 billion. The next three happened this year. All right. First Republic Bank, $229 billion. Silicon Valley Bank, $209 billion. Signature Bank, $118 billion. Whoa. And then the contagion you might be aware of. The idea that this is spreading, kind of a Jurassic Park situation. One animal gets out and uh-oh, the velociraptors get out. Now we're really nervous. I'm just going to read to you the stock price movements that have occurred this week. PacWest, down 67%. Home Street, down 48%. First Horizon, down 47%. Metropolitan Bank, down 40%. First Foundation, down 35%. Western Alliance, down 34%. Comerica, down 25%. West Banco, down 25%. And Zions, down 25%. These aren't insignificant financial institutions. I'll remind you, this sounds like a performance of a cryptocurrency gone wrong. No, these are actual legitimate banks, large banks, that the market is saying, uh-uh, we don't trust you. A lot of banking is trust. Now, what does this mean for us as investors? Certainly, if you're a depositor in any of these institutions, it may be wise to bring, and you have 
deposits in excess of the FDIC limits, it may be wise for you to move those to a money market fund at your brokerage account. You could probably get a better rate. What I, my first thought when I saw this is, ugh, it is so hard to be an individual stock investor. It is so hard. If you'll remember from past episodes, we recalled only 6% of the publicly traded securities account for the return in a given index, large index. 94% of the stocks do about what treasuries do or worse. So you're counting on 6% of the index to deliver all the returns. And that makes sense the more you think about it because there are situations like this where, wow, you look at some of these stocks pack west. I was looking at this just prior to this and I said, okay, what if we had been individual security selector July 1 of the year 2000? It goes back 23 years. You held the stock. It's probably going to zero. Right now you're down 75%. The stock trades at $3.60. It was trading at $14 July of 2000. If you were, and, and, and you may have had really good data. This may have been a great bank. I'm not familiar with the company. They make one risk problem. They make one, and they find themselves in an environment that's unforgiving. Because you, you can make a mistake and be in an unforgiving environment. Imagine you're that individual stock owner, or let's say your family decided we just we're just gonna we like the people here at PacWest. We're gonna put our all our money in this stock, and it's not a small stock. It is now now it's a four hundred forty four million dollar market cap. This is a multi billion dollar company, and and you're gonna get zeroed out probably if you own the stock. To me, this is just a great reminder. One. Humility. As investors, we've got to have humility to, to presume we have some sort of repository of knowledge that others don't and we can see things before they happen like a Old Testament prophet would. No, we cannot. And so to me, this is a reminder that if you do, if you're listening and you do have a large holding, and that holding represents a plurality of your net worth, and you may love the company, you may think the management's great, you may love their products, in humility, it's probably wise to say, you know, I should probably just take the tax hit here. Sell and diversify. Because you just never know when a storm will come and is it really worth it? Is whatever upside or avoidance of tax really going to be worth it? I'd say no. Uh, and what I found interesting is despite, I mean, you, you see that 67% down, 67% in a week. It's this multi-billion dollar bank. Well, how did the... International stocks do this week? Flat. How did the domestic stocks do? Down 2.4%. So for the global investor, you, you didn't even see it on the Richter scale. It just, it just didn't happen. For those who were concentrated in these banks, it was trouble. So in humility, let's be willing to remove that firm-specific risk and own a whole lot of stocks, not just the few we think will work out. Next up, article by Mr. Jack Pitcher in the Wall Street Journal. Investors are piling into actively managed exchange traded funds. Active exchange traded funds are helping bring more complex trading, trading, sorry, trading strategies to the masses. The article reads, investors are pouring money into actively managed exchange traded funds, underscoring the appeal of active strategies after years of calls for passive index investing to take over. I sometimes wonder if they have plants writing these articles. No offense to Mr. Pitcher, but 
It explains that uh, active funds still make up a sliver of the $7 trillion ETF market, less than 7% of the assets, but they've attracted 30% of the new flows. So it's really working, the folks who are trying to introduce these strategies, and I wonder who's behind it. <clears throat> J.P. Morgan, our friends at J.P. Morgan, I tell you, respect, respect. They, are, they know how to push higher price fees, let the uh, results be darned, but they have some products, and the pitch goes like this. Uh, this is great. Here we go. Active ETFs are garnering more interest given the market volatility we've been in, and especially given there are so many leading players that people are familiar with that now offer an ETF version of their strategies, said Todd Rosenbluth, head of research. So by way of review, an exchange-traded fund, it's like a mutual fund, and yet a bit different in that it trades throughout the day. And exchange-traded funds really were popularized with index funds. So they were a, a wrapper for the index fund that was found to be a lower-cost way for these fund houses to manage the assets, and for many, a more tax-efficient way as well. So it is easier for these fund houses to uh, bring money in and, and bring money out with an ETF. There's a lot of behind that. We don't need to go into that. And it's just a little more cumbersome with a, a mutual fund that has a net asset value they have to match at the end of each trading day. ETFs trade at a discount or a premium throughout the day, and market makers bring those values in line. Now, why are people buying actively managed ETFs when the index product has been so wonderful? Well, they're humans, for one, and then there are very interesting strategies. So, particularly when the market cap index will have a bad year or two or three, you'll say, wow, what if we did something that just put a little spin on it? Just in a traditional market cap weighted index, you are ranking, for example, the S&P 500, the 500 largest companies representative of the American economy, Apple, Microsoft being heavily weighted, and very small companies uh, having a much smaller weighting. Well, with these different active exchange trade funds, they're going to use a different lens outside of market cap to put these assets in. And that is what's going to convince you, know, you the investor, that they will, they will outperform over time. What to watch out for. And it's not just cost. Typically, there's a little bit of an increase on cost, but they're really beating the cost down. Um, there's a group called Dimensional Fund Advisors, active manager out of Austin, Texas, now, they do operate mutual funds uh, to financial advisors, but they're getting into this ETF space, launching their own. They are uh, the largest ETF manager at the end of 2022 with 30 active ETFs, 70 billion under management. And they are keeping fees low. So it's not just a fee thing. Um, although it's certainly more expensive, a lot of it's just, are these new strategies ones that you can stick with through thick and thin. A lot of them that I see are just kind of value tilts. So the, the accusation against the market capitalization index might be, hey, you're too tech heavy because you've got Microsoft, you've got Apple, now you've got NVIDIA creeping up and Google. And so, okay, well, maybe I need to just do a value tilt. So I'm now buying companies that maybe are kind of old line toothpaste companies or Walmart or Coca-Cola, just things that aren't perhaps exposed to tech. The problem 
investor is that you have to decide when to get in and get out of these products. And they will outperform sometimes. They will underperform other times. So once you get off the straight and narrow of the market cap index, you are now in the rough seas of performance chase. And there may be a rare bird listening who thinks they can stick with a smart beta strategy where you're only going to buy companies that have a price-to-book ratio of this or a price-to-earnings ratio of that or going to have a different way of slicing the market. I think that's a one in a hundred thousand person. I'm not saying they don't exist. I, I believe they do. I think they're very rare. My experience with both myself, my own psychology of investing and others is that it takes about 18 months of underperformance where people start to really get nervous. About three years and they're done. They're toast. Because they, all their theories and preconceived notions go out the window and they say, stop, stop the pain. I just, I just want to, I can't lag the market like this. I'm tired of lagging the market. So my recommendation is to avoid these actively managed ETS. One, they are more expensive with an average expense ratio of 0.7% compared to 0.16% for the passive funds. You can get obviously much cheaper than that, probably for both, but it's just a, it's garnish that's unnecessary. You want to, to be great at investing, you want to find something you can stick with for 50 years. If you were to be great, you got to find something to stick with 50 years. I don't see this as that. Now, I think, hey, look, you can stick with it as long as it's cheap. I probably won't argue with you. If you, if you can find a smart beta actively managed ETF that charges you 0.05% and doesn't have a bunch of turnover, I really wouldn't bother me. It's probably just a value index. When I dig into the holdings, I'd, it reminds me of just a value index. They kind of dress it up for you, make it seem intelligent. It's really not. But I don't think you'll stick with it. I don't think I will either. So my recommendation is avoid. But show me. I mean, if you want to do it, I'd, I'll look at it. I'll tell you. And then Jason Zwig, one of our favorites, the intelligent investor. Getting the sharp end of the investing stick, investors are flooding into funds that specialize in private debt. Many claim to offer mouthwatering returns at extremely low risk, but those claims depend on an unrealistic, unrealistic definition of risk. Amen. So, Mr. Zwig explains, consider a recent online fact sheet, I love these names, from Cliffwater Enhanced Lending Fund, a $1.5 billion portfolio of private debt. Now, private debt, we're going to find it. What's debt? In its simplest form, it's a promise. One entity or individual is going to make to another. If you are the borrower or the lender, if you're the borrower, you are going to take this money and the lender is going to have a promise. They need to get paid back. So U.S. Treasury notes are a famous one, U.S. Treasury bonds. It's a promise between you, the investor, and the United States government. There is a perception that it is a risk-free return because the United States government cannot default on its debt, the news cycle notwithstanding. I recognize that's being argued right now. But in these situations, what's a private debt fund? You actually give these fund folks your money. You might give them $100,000, $1 million, less, more, whatever. They then lend it out to these folks who think they can borrow from the fund better at better terms or just at any terms that a traditional bank won't do it. So there's, there's typically more risk. So what Mr. Zwick is highlighting is some of the advertising. So the Cliffwater Enhanced Fund he said this document showed someone had a sharp ratio. You don't need to know what a sharp ratio other than it's just a definition of risk. And they give a ridiculous definition of 10 and a beta of zero. Beta meaning to what degree is its relationship with the market? A beta of one 
meaning, hey, it's going to trade with the market. A beta of 0.5, it's going to be 0.5 as volatile as the market, so less volatile. A beta of 3, whoa, three times the volatility. So it's a way for investors to realize, hey, how volatile is this thing? Well, this advertisement for this Cliffwater deal is saying new volatility and incredible returns for your risk. Well, people looked at that and said, well, hold on. In fact, Mr. Zwig called Mr. Sharp, who invented the Sharp Ratio, the emeritus Stanford University professor, finance professor, Nobel laureate, and he laughed at the figure. He said, nope, can't be me. Maybe that's another Sharp, but that's not my ratio. And the math would be silly. The lesson for you and I, investor, is we're going to see advertisements throughout our investing lives that are going to tickle our ears. This is one of them. Hey, what could be so wrong as this? You're going to get a huge yield. Probably will. And and that's not to say all private lending is bad. It's just beware of people telling you things like, hey, this is less risk and more return than the market. What they're telling you is 2 plus 2 equals 5. The humble rules of arithmetic have to be suspended for those promises to be made good on. So article continues and just says, well, industry-wide, according to a 2021 survey, private credit funds aim to achieve a rate of return of about 8%. They don't use leverage or borrowed money. Leverage private credit funds seek to earn 11%. Today's market, you can earn about 5% on risk-free U.S. Treasury bills. These private credit deals get packaged into funds that oftentimes charge 1.25% annually and uh, up to 3%. And they have incentive fees. 10 to 15% of what you get in, tar- in excess of the rate of return. So you lock your money up. It's opaque. There's the illusion of no volatility in these private deals because it's not marked to market pricing like a publicly traded bond would be. That may assuage you as an investor and may not make you nervous. The volatility is still there. I assure you, had they wanted to sell their portfolio, they would get a mark and it would be whatever it was. It would not be your purchase price probably, right? It'd be more or less. So the article concludes, Zwig says, if your financial advisor pitches you on investing in a private credit fund, consider whether you'd be better off profiting from the customers than becoming one. He's referencing this uh, quote, testifying at a U.S. Senate hearing on mutual fund expenses in 1967. Kids, you hear that? 1967. Economist Paul Samuelson said that after realizing how expensive some funds were, quote, I decided that there was only one place to make money in the mutual fund business as there is only one place for a temperate man to be in a saloon, behind the bar and not in front of the bar. Preach, Mr. Samuelson. So, do not go to the bar and take the drink. Would be my suggestion. You don't have to do it. To, to get these returns with the risk you have and the, the income tax hit you take, it, I don't see the value. Uh, they look very appealing because the yields are very mouthwatering. Um, even in a high interest rate environment like this, they're going to be even higher. But the risk you take is enormous. And I liken these funds to picking up quarters in front of a train on a train track. So you don't know where the train is. But as long as you're picking up the quarters, you really feel like a genius. And as you brag to your peers, I'm picking up quarters. This is so great. You guys are not picking up quarters. It's when the train comes that you get wiped. And that is what happens with a lot of these private debt funds. Everything's great. Everything's going along smoothly until we have a bit of a problem. Until what's going on right now where interest rates are rising and credit's tied and creditworthiness of borrowers dips and you can't get wiped out.
So be willing, investor, to stick with the tried and the true. If you want to own fixed income, do it in a simple manner. I like the Vanguard total bond market. You can get shorter duration if you want. If you want to own stocks, do so in a simple manner. Vanguard total world is great. VT, bonds I use, ticker BND, bonds I would recommend rather. Simple wins in the investing game. Be willing to be simple. And that's the key to being great in investing. So as always, keep your costs low, keep your investing simple, keep your time right.